The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. God has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, when all debt will be forgiven. This is the word in black and red. Hello, and welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I'm your host, Micah Belong, the wise old Lama NB, joined today by Pastor Kuma, aka Don, and we're going to have a conversation about one of the weirdest little texts in the Bible, Genesis 9, 18 through 10, 32. Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, came out of the ark. Now Ham was Canaan's father. These were Noah's three sons, and from them the whole earth was populated. Noah, a farmer, made a new start and planted a vineyard. He drank some of the wine, became drunk, and took off his clothes in his tent. Ham, Canaan's father, saw his father naked, and told his two brothers who were outside. Shem and Japheth took a robe, threw it over their shoulders, walked backward, and covered their naked father without looking at him, because they had turned away. When Noah woke from his wine, he discovered what his youngest son had done to him. He said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest servant he will be for his brothers. He also said, Bless the Lord, the God of Shem. Canaan will be his servant. May God give space to Japheth. He will live in Shem's tents, and Canaan will be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. In all, Noah lived 950 years. Then he died. These are the descendants of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, to whom children were born after the flood. Japheth's sons, Gomar, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tuval, Meshech, and Tiras. Gomer's sons, Ashkenaz, Riphthah, and Togarmah. Javan's sons, Elishish, Tarshish, Kittim, and Radanim. From these island nations were divided into their own countries, each according to their languages and their clans within their nations. Ham's sons, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Cush's sons, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteca. Ramah's sons, Sheba and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod, the first great warrior on earth. The Lord saw him as a great hunter, and so it is said, like Nimrod, whom the Lord saw as a great hunter. The most important cities in his kingdom were Babel, Edek, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Asher left that land and built Nineveh, Rehoboth's city, Kalah and Rezin, the great city between Nineveh and Kalah. Egypt fathered Ludim, Ananim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Athrusim, Kasluhim, and Kaphtorim, from which the Philistines came. Canaan fathered Sidon, his oldest son, and Heth, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arbadites, the Zamorites, and the Hamathites. After this, the Canaanite clans were dispersed. 
The Canaanite boundary extends from Sidon by way of Gerar to Gaza, and by way of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim to Lasha. These are Ham's sons according to their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Children were also born to Shem, the father of all Eber's children, and Japheth's older brother. Shem's sons, Elam, Asher, Arkpashad, Lud, and Aram. Aram's sons, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpakshad fathered Shalah, and Shalah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The first was named Peleg, because during his lifetime the earth was divided. His brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shefleth, Hazarmavath, Jereth, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimal, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jabab. All of these were Joktan's sons. Their settlements extended from Mesha by way of Safar, the eastern mountains. These are Shem's sons, according to their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their generations and their nations. From them the earth's nations branched out after the flood. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage. The first thing that I really want to note here is the fact that this story is about the fundamental interconnectedness of all people. When we were reading about Cain's children and the Nephilim and all those sort of things, they were talking about these people groups that sort of branched out and caused all this destruction and everything else. But those people are no more, according to this story. According to this story, there are only these people, all of whom are descended directly from Noah. And so, according to the logic of this, we are all fundamentally interconnected as a human species to this great moment of of sorrow and trauma and tragedy, and yet we still grow up and end up having these divisions that divide us against each other, and in this first moment have this strange division. Before we get into that strange division, I also want to talk about the way that there is such an interesting interplay between Christianity, the Bible, the stories that we are told, and our broader culture, because we see this person Nimrod, right? Now, In our understanding of the word Nimrod, if you call someone a Nimrod, you're calling them an idiot, right? You're calling them a fool. And how did that come to be? Well, for a long time, Nimrod was understood as a sign of a great warrior. If you go and read uh, Victorian poetry, Nimrod almost always is this term of affection for someone who's a great warrior. It's said about Lord Byron in a poem that I don't know well enough to quote. But Nimrod is this this compliment, right? Until it is used by Bugs Bunny to describe Elmer Fudd. (laughs) (laughs) I love this story. Yeah. (laughs) And, And Bugs Bunny uses this dry sarcasm all the time to mock Elmer Fudd. Elmer Fudd is trying to be this great hunter, and instead he just gets screwed over time and time again, and he gets called Nimrod. Now, Nimrod is just a term of sarcasm, even in Bugs Bunny, but because perhaps our audiences didn't understand the connection that was being made, we looked at Elmer Fudd and said, well, Elmer Fudd is clearly not a very intelligent person, and so Bugs Bunny must be mocking him entirely. So I have to say there is something really just truly and historically wonderful about the fact that the origin of this term is Americans don't understand the Bible, so start calling somebody (laughs) stupid for no reason. Like, there is something truly and uniquely us about that that I just get (laughs) chef's kiss. It's perfect. 
Exactly. And there are so many things among American Christianity that are this way, right? Like reading the Bible literally rather than reading it the way that everyone has for thousands of years, yeah. you know? <laughs> Um, and and I even put literally in square quotes, right? Because they're not reading the Bible literally. They're reading the Bible in the weird way that they happen to read it um, because they misunderstand what's going on, right? And so, um, and part of the reason that this podcast exists, right, is so that we're understanding the Bible a little bit more the way that it's meant to be understood rather than making nimrods out of us all. So there's that interconnectedness of all people. There's the way that the evolution of biblical fan fiction that happens, that our extra-biblical sources cause us to interpret the story in different ways. But there are at least two really radically different interpretations of this story, both of which are rooted in this idea of nudity as a point of shame that we're going to talk about. But these two very different interpretations where either Noah is the victim or Noah is an oppressor, right? And I think both of those interpretations can be true, and, and we should hold both of them together lightly. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about nudity as a point of shame. I'm going to go ahead and read for you guys from Alter's footnotes on uh, verses 20 through 27 and see if if this doesn't surprise you a little bit. He says, no one has ever figured out exactly what it is that Ham does to Noah. Some, as early as the classical Midrash, have glimpsed here a Zeus Kronos story possibility that is reinforced by the fact that to see the nakedness of frequently means to copulate with. And it is noteworthy that the Hebrews associated the Canaanites with lasciviousness. Uh, see, for example, the rape of Dina. And then he goes on to compare this to what Lot's daughters did, where they, you know, pretty much nailed him to the ground and got themselves some kids. So, the like, there is a translational way here that what Ham did here may not have had anything to do with the nudity, per se, but to what he did in terms of a sexual act towards his father here. So that is a distinct possibility in the translation as well. That blew my mind. I'd never, never imagined that. And the fact that it's treated this way, whereas Lot's daughters is treated so differently, uh, speaks to some real questions about how the translation has been treated historically. Yeah, I think that we see that nudity is a point of shame right here in this story, mm. just like it was in, in the story of the Garden of Eden, that suddenly Adam and Eve discover that they are naked and it is a point of shame for them, something that wasn't a point of shame for them before, but suddenly has become one because of their acknowledgement of it, right? And it's really interesting. We have a lot of sources that talk about nudity in the ancient Near East and the fact that there are plenty of goddesses, there's plenty of fertility statues that have naked naked women on them, right? Um, oftentimes that have oversized breasts, um, you know, these sorts of uh, images of fertility that could be associated with having lots of children, right? But we very rarely in the ancient Near East, um, particularly in the area around Israel, find ancient figures that are nude men. And when we do, it's almost always as a symbol of defeat, that the nude man has been in some way uh, overcome and defeated, right? It's interesting that Noah is here taken from this position of, you know, he's he's the he's the only patriarch, he's the only <laughs> he's the head of a family that has just survived a catastrophe that has destroyed the entire world and he's put into this position of defeat because of his drunkenness, right? Well, I, you know, we talked about this off camera a little bit and 
There are a lot of different interpretations, as you say, that we can apply to Noah in this moment, some more modern than others. But for me, my, the interpretation that I dance around here a lot has uh, as much to do with kind of that wonderful meeting point of grief and what we would now call toxic masculinity. Uh, so mm. what we see with Noah here is, and this is, we don't, we don't think about the emotional state of our biblical heroes very often. We, we look at their actions and we look about the, like the cultural aspects around them, but we never consider really, you know, we talk about what Noah, but no one ever asked how Noah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I think, that, I think it serves us well to do this here. And this is, debate around it notwithstanding. This is one of the reasons I actually quite like the Russell Crowe movie take on Noah is because it really did explore the emotional aspects of what was happening there. And when I read this, I cannot help but think of a man who just witnessed what is got to be, from his perspective, the equivalent of a divine genocide of the entire human race. Mm. And survivor's guilt and... The great task ahead of like, okay, congratulations, you're the new, you're basically the new Adam. You get to rebuild the entire species, and he's sitting there, just marinating in grief yeah. and stress and fear and worry, and all of this language surrounding him of, well, we got rid of the curse, and I can't help but be in his position and think, well, I sure as hell don't feel not cursed. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I feel quite the opposite of that, and so as is typically the case with people in patriarchal societies, what we would now call those that are uh, suffering under toxic masculinity, he doesn't respond to that by talking to people or by like doing anything remotely healthy. Uh, he calmly sets himself to the creation of grapes, he invents wine, and then he drinks himself half to death, which, you know, as anyone who had, you know, a, a male father figure that grew up in the 50s or, you know, pretty much any time if you're in Japan, um, you know that that is pretty much the preferred method of dealing with any emotions within patriarchal uh, societal constructs. So there is a real relational aspect to this that I see happening here, where um, like the social taboos of nudity and stuff will come into it later. And his reaction after the fact is to lash out at one of his kids hard uh, for something that is basically just a social taboo. So... As anyone who's grown up with an alcoholic parent, which I did not, but I know I know many who didn't, or who did, sorry, this here rings incredibly familiar. The paternal overreaction to waking me up when I was passed out drunk, like there is, so there is a consistency to that. So in this, I see a lot of that uh, happening here, and there are again, there are broader interpretive issues we can bring to the table. There are other things that we do, but at the heart of it, I tend to see that. And also, and I, I throw this out there as a side note, there's a literary piece to it as well, which I kind of see as a bit of epic foreshadowing, because we talk about, well, okay, the curse has been removed, and then the first thing does is Noah get drunk and crap on one of his kids. Like, okay, well, maybe that curse uh, didn't totally go away, and we're going to have to reckon with that with some sort of messianic figure down the line. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I love that interpretation that sees Noah as as a hurt person who then turns to hurt other people. That's something that I certainly, <laughs> certainly understand very intimately. <laughs> um, you know, that there are, there are certain kinds of generational trauma, right, that, that do feel like a curse, that the anger of my grandfather passed on to the anger of my father that has now hit me, and I am desperately fighting to not pass on to my kids, you know. And, and 
that is Noah's first reaction, is to invent a whole other way to dull his own senses. I particularly like the interpretation because we see that Noah was a righteous man. We have no idea why he was a righteous man. And we don't even know what the word righteous really is supposed to mean in this context. But if we take that he has just seen humanity fall apart and suddenly he is just overwhelmed by that, well, maybe he was just the only person who was really empathetic enough to bother listening to God, right? Who was empathetic enough to say, yes, I'm going to protect my family. I'm going to protect the people around me. I'm going to make sure that humanity is saved. And that's why he listened. And it's also why he ends up in this position where he is so hurt, he hurts others as well. There are two points there that I think are, are supremely important, not just in understanding Noah, but in understanding pretty much all of the all of the biblical stories, all of them. Uh, is you, you say Noah is a righteous man? Well, that's a two part statement. There, he is righteous and a man, and part of being man, well, part of being human. You know, not to not to belabor the gender terminology here. Part of being human is the fact that we have the ability to have positive characteristics that when we lose our ability to adapt, when we lose our ability to understand, uh, or when we just get like cold-cocked by sin, these positive <laughs> attributes can turn in on themselves and become negative attributes. Uh, in this case right here, you highlight Noah's empathy, which may well be the one thing that differentiated himself from like Tubal-Cain and all the other crazy folks that were uh, running around uh, looking like Brian Cox and cutting people. Um, <laughs> and, you know... He's got that empathy to him, but once the empathy is turned inward, it becomes anger and violence because he doesn't know how to handle the grief associated with the empathy. When it becomes too much to bear, rather than knowing how to handle it healthy, it turns in on itself, and we wind up with a positive attribute turned in, into a negative. And that is, like, I, I bring this up every chance I have that we cannot forget that our biblical heroes are human and not even necessarily like perfect righteous humans either. Like they have the same emotional failings and screw ups that we do. Some of them are better than others. You know, shameless plug here. If anybody follows the, uh, the podcast that, that I do with my own church community here, we talk a lot about Abraham because we just got through that whole mess <laughs> of Abraham. And let me tell you, this guy was not, this sold his wife into sex slavery on multiple occasions, taught his son to do the same, cheating people left and right. Like our heroes are not necessarily good people in the way that we tend to immortalize them. And that's not. That doesn't negate the importance of them as heroes. It doesn't negate the importance of the Bible. It makes them human, which in a way makes it more important to understand that way. One of my favorite podcasts is Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff. And if you are, dear listener, not a listener of that podcast, I highly recommend going and changing that. Uh, but one of the things that they often talk about, uh, Margaret Kiljoy on that show often talks about, is the fact that all of these beautiful humans that she is looking into often end up coming with this other dark baggage, right? I'm sure that part of the impetus for not creating that show a hell of a lot earlier was the fact that humans are complicated. And when you start talking about heroes, you're going to inevitably end up with some dirt right there that, that might throw us off. And I think that particularly with a story like Noah where we see him, this empathetic character brings about the salvation of all humanity, 
is then just a complete dick. Like, (laughs) there's no nicer way to put it, that he did this amazing thing and then ended up cursing a people group that end up being oppressed, you know, in in these terrible, terrible ways, who are the siblings of the people who oppressed them. I'm going to make it as simple as possible for all of the uh, various geeks and sci-fi fans that are, are listening to this podcast now. If you want to understand what we're talking about, about the nature of humanity and the balance of good and evil, allow me to recommend the highly underrated Star Trek Voyager episode, Darkling, wherein the Doctor experiences this exact thing. Um, and by the way, if you get that reference, uh, I love you. Thank you very much. But it... It wouldn't be me on any sort of media without including a Star Trek reference. So I've done my duty. Let's continue. <laughs> oh, I wish I was into Star Trek so I understood what the hell you were talking about half the time. Um, but <laughs> no, let, let me let me be clear. You wish you were into Star Trek because uh, I don't know when people are listening to this, but right now when we're recording it, we're coming to the end of the final season of Star Trek Picard, which is balls to the wall insane so yeah that's a reason that is a reason to wish to be a star trek fan let me tell you anyway geek out over let's continue on with the bible the other star trek um yes so, bigger but, can well actually i don't know if it's got a bigger canon or not i don't know two thousand years of it but anyway um so, De- definitely an equally rabid fan base we'll say that yeah much. oh yes definitely definitely the case but you know this story of this good and holy man who literally gets drunk with power, right? He becomes, he goes from being presumably a nobody, right? There's no talk about his position in society. There's no talk about why he's chosen. There's no talk about him being special in any way. Presumably a nobody, just just an everyday person like each one of us who does a direct action and that results in the salvation of humanity. And then he comes out on the other side, and suddenly he is in charge, and he is the one with power. And what does he do with that power? He builds a vineyard, and he invents alcohol, he gets drunk, he gets wasted, and he curses people, right? He literally gets drunk with power, and that causes the oppression of other people, right? So even this person who literally brought about the salvation of the world can become evil, right? In, in a very real way. And so that's what I'm talking about when there are these two different interpretations that really have to be held in tandem, that Noah is at first the victim of this, uh, of this seeming crime against him, being seen naked, right? Um, in a way that, that is a sign of defeat, right? But also that his reaction to it, uh, or perhaps the way that he gets set up into it, is itself a symbol of of his corruption, is the sign that he is not where he's supposed to be. It's also worth noting, too, here, and I, I'm going to throw this out here just because I love throwing wrenches into the machine. Noah's basically the OG gifted millennial. He peaked really early. He had one thing he was supposed to do, and then when he, when he was done with it, there was literally nothing else for him to do, so he just got drunk and passed out. Like, you know, as a as a gifted millennial, I, I get that. I feel both seen and called out. Um <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. He, you know, he does the one good thing and and it's as if he thinks that he can ride the coattails of that one good action for the rest of his life. So throughout this story, right, right, we hear the names of these people groups and these cities and these nations that would come up to arise, right? Cush, Egypt, Canaan, these are major nations that are around this area. Ashur uh, becomes Assyria's right, and builds Nineveh, the great city that that Jonah will try to bring to its knees, 
and Tarshish, right? Earlier in the story, Tarshish being one of those sons of Javan, right? Where Jonah runs away from. And so it's this symbol that Tarshish and Nineveh are cousins, and yet they end up as far away from each other as possible, spreading out throughout all the world, that all of humanity are related, but end up in wildly different places. Don't forget our boy Mizdaim as well, which is what it says in Alters, but I know that in the other translations it just says Egypt, because, hey, they're in here too. They're going to be a big player later on. Epic <laughs> foreshadowing. Yes, exactly. Um, alongside Babel, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we have these three great powers here that are referenced, that Babel, Assyria, and Egypt are going to be the primary political powers throughout the Old Testament here who are referenced as the cousins of the ancestors of the people of Israel, right? And so there, this deep interconnectedness weaves the foundation for the rest of the text. It's almost surprising that we don't see any reference to the Greeks here, but this text is probably written just before the Greek era, right before Alexander the Great comes and conquers things. And so Greece wouldn't necessarily have been on the radar for uh, the authors of this text. And it's interesting that we capture it here right before we see any Greek influence in these names that we reference here. And also interesting that we see one place that is still referenced. We see Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities that are destroyed, but we also see Gaza, right? The Gaza Strip is here a character in this story that is a story that continues to be told today as a reason that the people who live in the nation of Israel today get to oppress the Palestinians who are their neighbors, who are their siblings. It's so interesting here because the story is about the fundamental interconnectedness of all people, and yet Noah curses Canaan and gains this power because Noah is the one who gets the power over the land, right? And so he curses Canaan. He curses these people who should be Shem's siblings, who should be their cousins, right? And all these sort of things, and curses them to be eternally lower than them. And that is the same justification that is used today by the state of Israel. The state of Israel uses the same sort of religious jargon, the same sort of religious justification to justify the suppression and the oppression of Palestinian people, right? Where Ham walks in on Noah naked, and the result is that his son is cursed forever in perpetuity to be the slave of Shem. In that same way, we see the same sort of relationship playing out that the state of Israel is saying, because you threw water bottles, because your children threw rocks at our soldiers, we're going to respond by force that is overwhelming and kills those children, right? And, and murders people because they protest in this way. One of the most important things to note in this story is that this curse is ultimately just a justification for Israel's hatred of their neighbors. That Canaan represents all the people that live around them. It is literally the name that Israel uses for the people who are living in that land before they come there in, in the story, right? Now, the fact of the matter is that the actual people group of the Israelites were probably among those Canaanites. They were probably the same sort of people, but had formed some different sort of political affiliation and so counted themselves as distinct and different from the Canaanites around them. But ultimately, what this story shows is that the Canaanites and the Israelites are siblings, that they are cousins at the farthest reach away from each other. And yet... This story is used as the justification to oppress people who are just 
like them. And that is why the Bible is so dangerous. It is so powerful and dangerous. Because the same story can be used to justify years of hatred unless we remember that God is not there in this story. Noah curses. Noah, a supposedly righteous man, becomes the villain in this story that justifies years of hatred and oppression within the kingdom of Israel. But God does not condone it. God does not justify it. This is a curse coming from Noah, and it is a curse that keeps Israel from being able to band together with their neighbors to fight off the foreign invaders of the Assyrians and and the Babylonians. If they all united, then none of them would have been crushed. But because instead they see their fellow human being, their fellow working class human, their fellow poor person, their fellow Canaanite, the fellow human being existing on this earth free of the oppression of the empire, because we see each other as enemies, we're not able to come together to fight the real enemy that is coming. For all of you Americans who are presumably listening to this, if you are having difficulty connecting with the idea of a racially supremacist society oppressing a group of people based on a weird overreaction to something that's kind of vaguely sexual in nature, uh, I I really want to encourage you to go back and look on your whole history with respect to anybody black, because we know this one intimately well, too. And... All sorts of racial politics here are are blended in to this initial myth, right? Where we can recognize that we're all siblings, but somehow we have to justify our supposed superiority over someone else by quoting this curse, right? And this is not something that God is happy with, right? This is something that Noah gets pissed about and curses someone. When we recognize that this is just a human curse, that this is just something that one dude tried to use to justify the oppression of someone else, then we can also recognize that the people who are still using it are just that one dude being a dick, rather than this being some divine pronouncement of the way that things ought to be. God made it clear what the way that things ought to be. God reset the whole planet because people were treating each other like this. And Noah doesn't get the point. Noah doesn't realize that that's not what we're called to. In the end, the primary theme of the Bible is God says, this is how you should live, together and with respect for all beings. And then whoever he's talking to, or whoever God's talking to at that particular point in time immediately says, okay, but what if I didn't do that? And then the Bible continues. (laughs) And and I think that... um, I think that the story of Noah is a reminder in so many ways that we are all human, right? And even someone who is called to do something very special, that's called to do something that saves a lot of people, we can still fall into the the temptation to use that newfound power for evil. And, And that is why, ultimately, I'm a utopian anarchist, right? utopian because I recognize that whatever system we set up is ultimately going to fail in some way. But that we would be remiss if we didn't recognize that there are a lot of ways to fix the system as it is now. And if we can do that while recognizing that we are also the kinds of people who are sucked into power, just like everyone else, and as long as we hold on to that power, we are in more danger of falling into it, 
as long as we recognize that and work to resist it, then I think we can actually work to build a better world based off of our love for each other and the fact that we've all been saved rather than giving into our despair and our grief and causing that to reject any chance of vulnerability. Thank you, Don, for being a part of this episode. And thank you, dear listener, for sticking with us and for being with us for a little while now. If you have been enjoying these shows, please share them with your friends on Reddit, wherever, Discord channel, and join our Discord channel so you can be a part of our conversation. Now, Past Micah, take it away. If you're interested in discussing this episode, religion, or general leftism, please join our Discord channel found in the show notes. We host a Bible study every Friday at 12-ish p.m. Eastern Time to discuss this week's episode. If you're interested in supporting the show, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash the word in black and red. Your support helps me pay our amazing editor and relieves my guilty conscience of exploiting someone's free labor. If you would like to appear on the show or reach us for any reason, you can reach us at the word in black and red at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. Thank you, past Micah. And now, my friends, go and be vulnerable with each other so that your invulnerability does not become a curse to someone else. Shalom. Shalom.